Welcome to episode 10 of the Clare Valley podcast, bringing you the latest in council news, issues, community events in the Clare and Gilbert Valleys area. I'm your host, Annabelle Homer. Coming up, we'll hear about the important work at Lifeline Connect in Clare, a centre that aims to build a safety net for community members experiencing difficulties or are in crisis. We want people to come to us, you know, when they're having that small issue that is causing them stress. We always say no issue is too small or too trivial for us. So really encouraging people to come early um, before their issues really manifest. And we'll continue to look at peak bodies, those volunteer groups in your communities who make decisions, fundraise and secure government funding for local projects. In this episode, we'll visit Watervale and Mintero, where there's been a significant amount of investment driven by peak bodies, such as the million-dollar development, The Vale. Well, this building alone is basically a million-dollar project that we're sitting on now, and the tennis courts in front of us, uh, that's probably looking around 250000 for all of that. And then the cricket club, over the years, have probably spent the two fifty as well, so probably about a million and a half. I would have thought spent. But first to the latest news from Council Headquarters, I'm joined by Andrew Christensen, Director of Development and Community, and Leanne Kunoff, Director of Corporate Services, as the CEO, Dr Helen McDonald, was down with COVID at the time of recording. Firstly to Andrew, good news for those that drive electric cars as four rapid charging stations are due to be installed in Clare. Yeah, um, it's actually pretty exciting. So the RAA has been engaged by the state government to put in a, a ultra-fast charging station network throughout South Australia, regional South Australia, and they've identified Clare as one of the places that they want to put it, and they're going to put in four rapid or ultra-fast charging stations. Um, there's three different types, but this is the fastest one in the car park that's behind Cheapest Chips, so there'll be four there in the future. And this is really stage one of a broader rollout they're going to be doing, but... Um, um, it's quite exciting to have those things coming to declare. How fast is fast? Um, I think they said 15 to 20 minutes. So I think it's enough time for you to go there, grab yourself a coffee or something to eat and then go back in your car and go on your way. So why is Claire being chosen? I think Clare's one of those places where it's kind of about two hours away from Adelaide, which is sort of when you start to get a bit running down on the power so to speak and if you want to go north to like the Flinders Ranges or something like that it's a perfect place to charge up and then continue on your way north so it's got to be looked at as, a, as part of a broader network so there's a bunch of criteria the RAA did in order to select the sites but um, yeah that's what they were telling us it's kind of in that sort of sweet spot of being not too far not too close and mm-hmm. and fits into their broader network. But how many more people are, are driving electric cars these days. Sales of plug-in electric vehicles in Australia tripled in the past year from 6,900 to 20,665. Of interest, I suppose, is that there actually is currently a Tesla fast charging station at the Clare Valley Motel. So that's actually why you probably do see quite a few Teslas rolling around the Clare Valley is because they've got that, that access to that charging station there. These stations are due to be implemented in Clare next year. Some more development happening at Melrose Park, the implementation of some toilets. Yeah, this is great. I mean, um, the toilets there have been complained about for a long period of time and um, council listened to that and through some funding from the local road and community infrastructure funding from the federal government, council directed some funding to some new toilets and there's six new toilets going in the park, include disabled toilets, which is an important thing for us. And it's also being put in a a more central location, so it benefits um, users 
is both to the north of the park and to the south of the park as well. Councils have been investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in the park over recent times, including new bike park and also um, new playground as well, as well as some other amenity upgrades. So you've seen new seats and that sort of thing going around there. So it's just part of that border project to improve the park in conjunction with the Clare Valley model engineers who do an amazing job. Is it electric toilets, like those electronic toilets with the no. door where you press the button and the door comes open? No, they're your bo- boring you just, toilets. Your boring yeah. toilets, okay. <laughs> yeah. Not the fancy toilets. They don't okay. come cheap, I've got to say, but um, <laughs> they're, they'll be a great outcome really, particularly with disabled toilets and also baby change facilities, which there currently aren't any at the existing toilets. So yeah, that they'll be put in there too, which is really important because so many families use mm. that, that side. Leanne Cunoth joins me now. We're talking about um, rates and arrears. Let's look at the figures. How yep. do they compare to this time last year? Well, they're actually way better and we are in a better situation. We've got uh, 2.8% of our rates that are outstanding. The total rate bill is $14.488 million. So we have... Um, of that uh, um, outstanding is only 2.8%. So when you actually think of it that way, it's actually not very many people. Um, of those, um, the ratepayers that actually are outstanding, there's 565. We have uh, 54 of those ratepayers have a special arrangement, and those are the people that actually um, have have agreed with us to get into the, an agreement for a payment plan. Um, and then we also have people that um, have legal action against them, which is a bit unfortunate. And then we have um, where the balance is being pursued. And sometimes that could be a deceased estate, so it's out of the person's hand, um, or um, it might be that they are actually arranging for the sale of their property to happen, and that could also be um, an outcome that um, is good for them as well. It says that, uh, especially with some of the ratepayers, they just don't take the council's calls or they don't respond. I mean, how common is that? Quite quite common. Certainly some um, people that do try to avoid their paying their rates, which um, is their statutory responsibility, because if they don't pay their rates, then um, somebody else is subsidising them, those people that actually do. How many pu- ratepayers are doing that? Probably about 400 odd around that my number. And I mean, some of those people end up in a situation where we will get to um, a Section 184 notice, which actually means that um, they've had a three years outstanding and then we can actually um, sell them up. So those are, there is some investigations being done at the moment to finalise those people. Not a good way for them to be, but as I said before, if those people are not paying their rates, then somebody else is subsidising them by, by paying. 400 ratepayers are in that boat? Yes, they are. Yes. That sounds like quite a lot. Um, it's not a lot. I mean, it's been that way for the last two or three years. It's um, been a similar amount of rates that actually are outstanding, maybe a few more actual assessments that are being chased up. The actual number itself, as I said before, is only 2.8% of the total rate bill. So when you look at it that way, we are quite consistent with um, trying to work with people to try to get them to get their rates down because um, it's no benefit to them to, mm. for us to just leave it. So we are persistent in trying to call them and um, to get them to respond to us and get a payment plan in place because they're better off to make have communication with us than they are to just not answer our phone calls. You mentioned that council has the right to sell the property if they haven't paid their rates in three years. How often has that happened? In, say, the last 10 years, um, we've probably done two or three. That's probably it. There's, it's not a common practice. We do normally get to that stage and people actually think, oh, okay, they're getting serious now, borrow money or sell their property if they can't own property. Sometimes it's 
like a rural property, not got a house on it. So, so those are the properties that they leave outstanding rather than the ones with their house on it. If there's a house on it and there's people living in it, council will try to do everything they possibly can to get them to come to the table and talk to them about working out a payment plan. And quite often they do get to that stage, but they often get a help by neighbours or help by friends or somebody comes in at the last minute mm. to pay it so that they actually don't get to that stage. Is it residential primary production or vacant land, what are the percentages as to which of those ratepayers are in arrears? Well, yeah, 79% of the outstanding rates is from residential people and 13% from primary production and then vacant industrial and commercial makes up the remaining um, 7%, so mostly in residential. Council elections are coming up. There are two briefing sessions that will be held over the next month. What are the details there? Monday the 8th of August at the Barbara J Long Function Room in Claretown Hall at um, 7 o'clock and Tuesday the 9th of August um, at 7pm at the Riverton Rec Ground. Both are candidate briefing sessions. These were uh, people that are potential council nominees come along to listen to how what it's like to be a councillor and what they might be in for if they are interested in putting up their hand for councillors. And we've actually invited two special guests to attend our sessions and both are um, young females, one from Wakefield Regional Council, Cathy Agnew, um, and one is uh, Councillor Hibbert from the um, Regional Council of Goida and she's coming to the Clare session to talk to people about what her experience has been like as being a council member. So if you're interested in running for council, make sure you pop by these sessions. You'll get a great insight into a day in the life of a councillor. Nominations open on Tuesday the 23rd of August and close at noon on September the 6th. Clare Valley Podcast. Clare Valley Podcast. You're listening. Clare Valley Podcast. Clare Valley Podcast. <laughs> As you enter the town of Waterval from the north, you'd be hard-pressed not to notice the million-dollar development The Vale, a community building overlooking the tennis courts. This project was 12 years in the making, and it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the ongoing commitment and perseverance of the Waterval Community Association, essentially the peak body of Watervale. This is just one example of what one peak body can achieve for its community. I caught up with Greg Brixey, chair of the Watervale Community Association, to hear about the story behind the Vale and the blood, sweat and tears that went into making it happen. Well, the Vale itself, where we're sitting now, was a bit of a pipe dream back in 2009 is when it originally started. So uh, we went through a fairly large process of town meetings and planning and and other things just to get it off the ground and then multiple grants and fundraising and I think by 2016 we went to council and asked them whether they would do a DA for us on the building on what we'd designed so we were basically shovel ready ready to go so if any grant opportunities turned up yeah we were we were good to go so sat around for about four years and um yeah finally um we got some funding in the end which was fantastic. So how much money has been invested into this? Uh, well, this building alone is basically a million-dollar project that we're sitting on now. And the tennis courts in front of us, uh, that's probably looking around 250000 And then the cricket club probably spent with re-turfing the grass full 
pop-up irrigation system, two big water tanks, bores and everything else there, probably up around the, the 250 as well. So probably about a million and a half, I would have thought, spent. So you mentioned there was some, obviously, government grants involved in this, but how much did the community have to fundraise? Towards this building, we would have put about 400000 towards mm. this building itself. Tennis club would have paid for half of what theirs was and the cricket club probably not in a monetary value but they basically put all the irrigation in themselves did the fence all themselves so labor which was huge hours and hours of work there so how did you how did you raise the money lots of sausage sizzles or what uh well the community one was pretty much from funds from when we sold the hole Mm -hmm. uh back in 2013 i think it was we sort of did do fundraising we used to have the day on the greens Back in the day, we used to have the bush camping through the park here, so we had sort of money from them. But in the same time, we we had that money invested, but then we probably could have sat on it, but we kept putting money back in towards the park and doing little things all the time. So, yeah, we sort of just sat and waited and eventually got some state funding and a bit of federal funding and then funding out of the council, which was fantastic. So was this initially driven by uh, the community association, like what you're involved with, or has this been one person's vision uh yeah that was probably my fault i suppose being um (laughs) young and the just the the state that the hall was in toilets were condemned it was full of asbestos there wasn't really ever a kitchen in it uh it needed a lot of work it needed a lot of acoustic work it was basically a bit of a money pit really for something that we couldn't make money out of and at that stage i think uh labor were in government and they were throwing money around left right and center and we thought well here's an opportunity if we can sell this building and uh, redevelop it down here at the Oval, which is a bit safer off the main road, uh, safer for the kids and make it more of a sort of a family environment. We thought, oh, that'll be that'll be a good idea. So here, here we are 12 years later, 13 years later. Yvonne, you are the chair of the Inventario Progress Association. We've just heard what Watervale's been doing over the last couple of years. What's been going on in Mintero? bit smaller scale to Watervale but um, in 2019 we secured some funding um, the Clare and Gilbert Valley Council as well as the uh, Building Better Regions funding around in the vicinity of it was about $150,000 when you include what the Progress Association and the Mintero community raised um, to upgrade the Institute. So that was a massive project. Um, The Institute was looking very tired. We were able to put in all access toilets, complete, do the flooring, absolutely paint it throughout, modernise it inside but still maintain the heritage and the history of the building. So that uh, has been fabulous. It's a beautiful venue now for events, very good for um, webinars and workshops. We've got a 75-inch TV there now where um, people can do webinars and workshops and facilitate um, those sorts of events so that was great our next thing is to look at landscaping the back of the institute so that that area can be beautified and and look really um, attractive the other part of that was highlighting the heritage and the history of Mintero so one of the key features was some work that we've done around the heritage banners that sit in the windows of the institute and I know we see so many tourists, so many people just stop and read them. It's just been a really lovely thing to be able to do. What we're now working on is 
more of a heritage walking trail around Mentero and um, having QR codes outside of each of the buildings and each of the the historical places so that people can just use their phones and and then they can find out a bit of information and if they want to find further information there'll be links to that as well. So how many people are on your association? On our actual committee there's eight but you know we've got members of probably 50, 60 members. It's a Uh, an older population, an older demographic, younger people, few and far between in Mintero. We do have a couple of young families or a few young families. But I think one of our greatest challenges is that because it's an older demographic, it's getting those younger people interested and involved in what's happening. We try very much to include them in the decisions that we make around, okay, this is an area we want to do something with, how should we do it, what should it include? But uh, there's not very many young people and so it's it's a challenge and so we've got an AGM coming up in August and filling positions on the committee I know already will be a challenge. Greg what's some of the challenges that you guys have faced at Waterville? We've just heard from what's happening in Montero. Are you feeling the same way? There's always plenty of challenges. There's always a bit of backlash from some people that don't honestly agree with what you're doing or why you're doing it but you just sort of got to stick to your guns and uh, look at the bigger picture sometimes. One concern Yvonne and the Mintero Progress Association is facing is whether to take over the lease of Mortlock Park. Now, council is asking communities to take on ownership of council buildings and leasing council land in a move to free up funds for council. Yvonne says the financial responsibility is too great, but there will be downsides if they don't take over the lease of the park. Mortlock Park sits under the Mintero Progress Association and it is a subcommittee of the Mintero Progress Association and essentially it's mainly used for sporting activities. It's not used for a lot of community events or community activities, uh, although that is increasing. Taking on a lease for a very small little Progress Association, as I've already pointed out, an ageing demographic, it's a big commitment for us. Council have made us aware that if we don't take on a lease, any funding application that we put in to do any work or apply for funding to upgrade the facility, we won't get it. We won't get funding because we can't demonstrate that we have a lease. I just think it's a lot for small communities to take on. I think it's a big responsibility and it is concerning. Um, It doesn't sit very well with me and it concerns me that as the chair of the Progress Association that I'm signing a lease on behalf of a community to take on this responsibility, whilst I know it's the whole committee that will make that decision, and, and but it's my signature that goes on the lease. It, that just does concern me, considering that it is an old building, it needs a lot of work. You know, Historically, we know that the bowling club in Mintero took on a lease for a building that really wasn't fit for purpose as well, and you know, they've really, really struggled to do those upgrades and you know having the lease on reflection hasn't really helped them. I do think it is worth noting that we do get good support from council and certainly if they are looking at increasing that peak body funding that is fabulous and there's some grants that they that um, we can apply for every year that generally they make sure that everyone gets a slice of the cake and gets a little bit of that money and I think in my letter to um, the CEO I did mention that it might be worthwhile perhaps considering increasing that amount of funding 
because um, you know then we could do so much more and uh, all of our time is volunteered so you know it's it's well worth um, the investment. Yeah definitely over uh, the past well 13 years of this project I think communication really is key you need to be honest with them I think and what you want to do and you know what your future goals or outlooks are going to be and so then they're on the same page we had a lot of guidance I've got nothing but admiration for the way this process went with this thanks to Low Hill and a, a few others um, within the council but it was a long time coming but they weren't new to the idea they knew what we were trying to do we just you just got to keep keep that communication open and they need to be uh, the same with you and be transparent of what what they think and is realistic and what what's not I think that's the way to look forward to, to anyway. That's Greg Brixey, the chair of the Watervale Community Association. And you heard earlier from Yvonne Cloak, the chair of the Mintero Progress Association. Andrew Christensen, who's the council's director of development and community, says he understands community's concerns and says it's true that if communities don't take ownership of the lease, they potentially could miss out on funding. The state and federal governments look for security of tenure nowadays. So, if they, the reality is, um, council is not going to build a new club rooms for them or or for for anyone else. Council's um, that's not council's responsibility to provide those assets. By way of example, Watervale and the Clare Oval, they're leased and owned by community-based organisations because they wanted to develop new buildings or assets. They wanted to improve those assets going forward. Council didn't do that for them. They they did it themselves. They were actually provided some funds from council and from the state and federal government, which enabled those things to, to happen. But they were delivered by those community groups or sporting clubs or whatever they happened to be. If they want to build a new asset and you build in new club rooms, which I know in Minterra that's something that they want to do, new change rooms, new change rooms they want to do, and that could be a multi-million dollar asset. If they were going to apply for grant funding for state or federal, those grants organisations would say, well, where's your lease? Um, what's, they want security of tenure. And if you don't have that, your chances of success within a highly, highly competitive environment for funding, because there's not much money that comes out of the state government for these sorts of things, is going to be lessened. I'm pretty aware that that's some of the feedback that's been provided to, to these sorts of groups. There's other community organisations that have said, look, we don't want to take it on, we've got no capacity to take it on. We've had discussions with Minterra for some time because they have they have plans to develop that site. They they want to grow Mortlock Park. They actually want to do some pretty significant improvements on the site. And if that's something, if that's a direction they want to go, they need to sign a lease. You know, that's that's just the reality of it. And they'll have better access to funding. They'll probably get support from council through that process. I can't speak on behalf of council, obviously, but you know, other sporting organisations have been successful in securing funding like Watervale and, and Clare Oval, for example. Okay, I'll also make a point that this is not a direction that just council, Clare and Give Valleys is doing with sporting organisations or otherwise. All other councils are moving in this direction with leases around security of tenure. I'm aware that in light council, it is mandatory. You cannot not have a lease. If you don't have a lease, you can't use the building. So we haven't gone and done that process, but it is something that, that that's some of those things that we're working through. Andrew Christensen, Director of Development and Community at the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council. (music) 
In the heart of Clare, there is a place where people can go to who are experiencing social, financial or mental health challenges. This place is called Lifeline Connect. They provide a free counselling service for anyone aged 12 and above. Lorna Woodward is the Regional Coordinator of Regional Connect Centres, who's an experienced social worker and has had a lot of experience in child protection. She says the Clare Centre began 16 months ago and is the only one of its kind in regional South Australia with another one in Broken Hill. She says these centres are very unique. We make our services as easy to access as possible. That's really important. So no referrals are required. People can literally just walk in off the street and if it's a counsellor is available, then we will provide a counselling session straight away. Otherwise, they can ring up, they can book appointments. So yeah, just making it very easy access. Do you have many people that walk in off the street and inquire? It is certainly increasing and often people who come in off the street are either someone who's in crisis on that day and they might just want a one-off session. So that's where we're a bit unique as well because we don't say that people, you know, have to have six sessions. People can come in and they can literally just have a one-off session if that helps to resolve their crisis on the day. Equally, we don't limit people to just six sessions. If they need more to work through whatever it is that's challenging them, then we, we work at their pace and within their timeframes. One of the other really important aspects of our service is we keep a database of all of the services around in quite a few of the local council areas to help people work out what service they actually need. Mm-hmm. People can become very fatigued by trying to find help and not getting the right place first time Mm. and some people give up and find it too hard so the idea of our centre is they can walk in here and we can help them find the service that they need and we will contact services for them we will support them to access those services so we don't just give someone a phone number and send them out the door if they require it we will sit with them we will make the phone call with them to help make sure that they are actually linked into the supports they require. So what services are you referring to? Um, So typically those might be financial counselling, they might be social supports, they might be community groups for people who are feeling isolated, might be connecting with um, psychologists or other mental health services, connecting with housing, family domestic violence. I guess the list is pretty endless Mm. really. Whatever somebody feels they need, we'll help them to find it. I understand that you're looking into bringing a stage production to Claire that's focusing on youth mental health. Can you explain more about that? Yeah, so this is called The Rainmaker. So it's a um, stage event I've recently become aware of and it's a... um, arts and health production for youth suicide prevention and youth mental health care so it fits fantastically well with our aims at the centre around um, and Lifeline's aims around a suicide free Australia but it also fits in very well with an organisation that I'm involved in the Cade McDonald Foundation Um, so Cade was a young man who took his life um, by suicide in 2018 and his mother and um, some of her friends have subsequently been very committed to preventing youth suicides and removing the stigma 
of talking about suicide and raising um, awareness in young people of youth mental health. Mm -hmm. So I will be talking to the Cave McDonald Foundation as potentially this being an opportunity um, where we can collaborate to bring this stage show to the area. You're wanting to bring youth mental health first aid to the centre. What does that involve? It's a two-day program and it's available to either parents or people who are working with young people and it essentially trains them much as you know physical first aid trains you how to be a first responder so if you notice that a young person is exhibiting signs of depression anxiety um, psychosis suicidality it gives you the tools to be able to respond to that in the first instance to know how to recognize that those things are going on for the young person to know how to respond appropriately to them and to be able to link them in um, with the professional supports another program you're looking to start in Claire is the suicide prevention network so why is this significant Yes, the suicide prevention networks are really an opportunity for members of the community to come together in a structured way, supported by Wellbeing SA, to look at how to raise the profile of mental health issues within their area, to undertake, you know, different events for health and well-being of people, and to, again, reduce the stigma associated with mental health and suicide. So it's all about getting conversations going in the community. So the network we're establishing here for the Clare and Gilbert Valley region is called Trailblazers. We chose that name because it links into, there are lots of opportunities for outdoor activities with walking here. So we're focusing on that link between physical and mental health. And we're hoping that our first activity will be a joint event with Clare High School and with the Cave McDonald Foundation and looking at doing a walk on the 10th of September, which is Worldwide Suicide Prevention Day. Lorna, a bit about you. What led you down this path? Yeah, so my background is I'm a social worker. Um, originally trained in the UK and then moved to Western Australia 14 years ago. I've predominantly worked in child protection. I moved to South Australia about 18 months ago and saw this opportunity with Lifeline. I'm really passionate about mental health and I guess having worked in child protection, I work with a lot of young people who experienced trauma and saw how that trauma carried on into adulthood you know, work with a lot of people who faced a lot of struggles in life around, you know, family domestic violence, drug and alcohol abuse. And it just made me realise that mental health was linked to so many aspects of those people's lives. And whether mental health was the initial trigger for their difficulties or mental health became the outcome of some of their life struggles. So working for Lifeline, has given me that opportunity to use all of those experiences and now work directly to really help support people who are struggling with their mental health, but also to provide that early intervention. And that's a really important aspect of this centre is we want people to come to us when they're having that small issue that is causing them stress. We always say no issue is too small or too trivial for us. So really encouraging people to come early before their issues really manifest. What are the suicide statistics across Australia? 
Yeah, so in 2020, which are the most recent statistics available, 1.9% of all deaths were by suicide, which equates to over 3,000 deaths per year. 52% of all those deaths by suicide in 2020 were in people aged 30 to 59 years of age. And when we look at the daily amount, which is often... I guess the figure that really resonates with people is that just under nine Australians die every day by suicide and 75% of those who take their own life are males. So some really sobering statistics to think about um, and Lifeline's goal is to have a suicide-free Australia. Gee, that's, that's, a, that's a big quest, isn't it? A suicide-free Australia. It's huge. Um, And another way of putting it into perspective is that more Australians die by suicide than by road accidents. And think of all the work that we put into, you know, road safety and accident prevention. And I guess one of the missions of Lifeline and I guess one of my personal passions is for us to be putting the same amount of energy into preventing deaths by suicide. The Lifeline Connect Centre in Clare is staffed with three counsellors and Lorna is one of them and there are nine volunteers. Volunteers are trained in REACH which is a suicide intervention and prevention program and they're also trained in accidental counselling which gives them the skills to listen effectively and to respond to people who are distressed or in crisis. Lorna says they are always on the lookout for volunteers. We very heavily rely on our volunteers here. They are the front face, I guess, or the front voice if you're ringing in. (laughs) They're the people who you're probably going to come in and meet with first. If someone's interested in volunteering, um, then they can come into the centre or contact me by phone. Um, There's a few stages we go through. There's usually about an hour-long sort of assessment interview. The reason we do that is a lot of our volunteers have their own lived experiences, which is fantastic in bringing that empathy and knowledge um, into the centre but we also have a duty of care so we want to make sure that you know we're not going to re-traumatise someone or bring up issues that they you know don't yet feel ready to cope with. People are required to have a police check and a working with children clearance then we will provide the training. Dwayne Menzies volunteers twice a week and is the only male volunteer. He had a workplace accident 20 years ago, deeming him unable to work in any capacity. Plus, he's had a lived experience as well. He wants to help others on their mental health journey, particularly men. Uh, I got involved in um, the Clare Connect Centre specifically because I used to be a stonemason, a typical bloke, worked with his hands, had blisters and all those sorts of things, had an accident, worked, could no longer work, got really bored with watching Dr Phil ad nauseum, so decided that I would go into the world of volunteering. Um, I specifically chose the Connect Centre and mental health uh, coming from a lived experience. So uh, having become well from from being not well, I wanted to share with particularly men on uh, just how easy that can be done. Specifically the Connect Centre, I wound up here because I literally walked up and down the main street of Clare looking for somewhere to volunteer and strolled into Lorna's office. So it was kind of meant to be. No, I had an interview with Lorna about what they did here, not knowing exactly what they did, and it was just a perfect fit. What was the accident? What sent me down down the road of um, of the dirt road off uh, off the freeway was a workplace accident where I'd actually um, I used to be a stonemason. I had a very large piece of granite fall and pin me against a headstone and pop five vertebrae in my spine, which uh, took away my ability to earn an income. 
as a married man with three kids, um, you take away the uh, man's ability to earn an income and you actually take away the man. So that was the catalyst for a whole bunch of other things that happened um, from that point, breakdown in marriage, all those sorts of things. You know, my daughter goes to uni. Very hard to put her through uni on a disability pension, but I do that. I don't dwell on it. I went through the work cover system, which was a horrible system. Um, No, I didn't get some big payout that enabled me to buy a Ferrari in a house. Um, I got nothing. Having said that, I would actually go as far to say it was probably the best thing that happened to me. Because when I was working, um, I always had a mental health problem. I always knew that something was in the background that wasn't right. But when you're earning $2,000 a week as a stonemason and you feel a bit bad, you can go out and have a beer, you can buy a bottle of scotch, you can go to the movies, you can go and buy a schnitzel parmigiana, and that'll keep you happy for the next, I don't know, five, six, seven hours. (laughs) When you're suddenly um, reduced to a shell, if I don't mean that in a bad way, suddenly you have to start looking at things in a different way. You can no longer have money to buy things to keep me happy. I realised that I was actually band-aiding a situation for a very long period of time. So through having an accident at work, through not working and through all these life changes, I would actually honestly say I came out a better man and my ex-wife would tell you that in a heartbeat. I still have a relationship with my ex-wife. I I guess that's the point I try to make to a lot of people. Whereas before I would gain pleasure from a Parmesan or a fast car and and a hot motorbike, now I get pleasure from a walk in the grass, taking the dog camp and uh, I've dumbed my life down to, to basics and I've got to tell you, mate, I think it was uh, I, I live a better life now than I did before. Would you be able to share your lived experience? Uh, absolutely, because my story is I came from a very normal middle class family with no problems, none at all. Um, and then something in life hit me from, from the side that I didn't see coming. Um, I won't go into details about that, that that's for a different time. Um, but it shows me that it doesn't matter what you do in life, something can, can just knock you off your tracks very easily and that then shows you that you're not safe so it was from that point on that I started to struggle I got to the point where there was no help there was no I'd had an attempt and was taken to hospital and treated terribly and shown out the door and what a dickhead you know what era was this uh, this was probably in the early 80s Mm. about 80s if you fronted a hospital having a suicide attempt you were considered to be you know weren't treated very well at all there was no ongoing help later in life I had a marriage breakdown and whatnot because I think I'd always had what I call men problems men problems being we don't speak we have to throw a pointy stick at a mammoth when we were cavemen and we just we just you know we wouldn't stop to think about that and we don't stop to think about what we do now so the second time that I actually had an issue, uh, I came out of that situation with help. I was detained at a mental health institution and that help has always been what we do here, which is encouraging people to speak. I don't think there are any cures for life. It's about how you um, process what happens to you. And it's really that simple to just rethink the way you look at things that happen to you and the, the way the world around you functions. And as men, we don't tend to do that. Um, because we do tend to sit in the truck with the V8. Men, men, you lift a bonnet of a car up and ten blokes will all stand around that bonnet and talk about the engine. But you mention, ask them how they're feeling. Don't worry about the you. How are you feeling? Oh, uh, you know, we won't speak. So that's where this place comes in. Hilary, what's your focus here? I'm a retired social worker and... And I've also regained my computer skills. And so you're the face? As people walk in the door, you are the face as well? Yes, yes, because we're both at the counter and mm. we do intakes where we can talk to the people and get a general view of what 
those issues have brought them here and then we make appointments for the counsellors. So your past life you're a social worker for community health in the Clare Valley Mm -hmm. so you've got a fair bit of experience. How have you found working for so long as a social worker and now working in this capacity what the general perception is of mental health in this small-knit community? especially following what happened with Cade McDonald and now the Cade McDonald Foundation. Do you think people are more aware? The stigma isn't there so much anymore? What's your take? I think it would still be there. I think the schools probably are more understanding of it. But what I worry about is the farmers who haven't got that uh, connection, who are out on the farms just doing their thing. And when things like um, the drought happened, because that was my first introduction to life, there was a few people that did suicide, unfortunately. I, I wish we could bring them in to understand, like Dwayne was saying, we need the men to be able to open up. But they're so solid and uh, I can do this all the time, no matter how hard it gets, men keep going. It's to be hoped people will know that they can come and speak to someone when they're feeling that low Mm. and not think there's no one there that cares because we certainly care here. And something really ironic I'd just love to add, whether you want to put this on or not, is Hillary, when I was going through a mental health situation and was suicidal and detained, um, Hillary was actually a counsellor that I believe I crossed paths with in my journey and look at me now, I'm sitting next to the... Well, what was the saying where the understudy becomes the... However that works. If anything, I could say that this works was I wished I'd had this Connect Centre when I was at a suicidal point because Lifeline is the number you ring when you've reached the edge. Connect is that intervention long before you get to that point. But the irony is that was my counsellor at one point and here I am sitting next to her offering the same service that she offered me. So, so that's rather ironic, I think. That's Dwayne Menzies and Hilary Adlam, who are both volunteering at the Lifeline Connect in Clare. If anyone has been affected by the issues discussed in this story, they can contact staff at the Connect Centre Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm, or call Lifeline 24-hour crisis service on 131114. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you'd like further information on any of the stories covered in this podcast, all the details are in my show notes. If there's someone or something that you love for us to cover on the podcast, please don't hesitate to get in contact. This podcast is proudly supported by the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council. I'm Annabelle Homer. I'll catch you next time.